0: My guest today is Professor John Hetty. Professor John Hetty is a researcher in the field of education and is professor and director of the Melbourne Education and Research Institute at the University of Melbourne. His research interests include performance indicators, models of measurements and evaluation of teaching and learning. He has written more than 400 articles on these and related topics his two very interesting and famous books on these topics are visible learning and visible learning for teachers professor john hetty is with me on the phone uh, john thank you very much for taking my call and welcome to bridging the gaps
1: thank you wasim it's great to be talking to you
0: john before we begin our discussion on the topic of what matters and what does not matter in teaching please tell us about yourself about your education about your career, and about your research.
1: Sure, I was um, born in the South Island of New Zealand, and a um, small country town. I then went to Teachers College and University um, in Otago, which is the southern, very southern part of New Zealand. Um, spent two years teaching, one year in a primary school, one year in a high school, and then did my PhD at the University of Toronto. Uh, after that, I got a job at at the University of New England, which is, a, uh, again, a small country town in the northern part of New South Wales, um, was there for 10 years, then went to, became the head of school at the University of Western Australia in Perth for 10 years, um, then went to University of North Carolina and um, the Department of Educational Measurement, which is really my background. I'm a, trained as a psychometric and me- me- measurement person uh, in statistics, and so I spent um, six years there and then um, returned home to New Zealand and had uh, 11 years at the University of Auckland. In that time, I switched roles with my wife and she had followed me around the world for all that time. So about 10 years ago, she became the academic and she was headhunted to go to Melbourne a few years ago. So one dutifully followed to University of Melbourne. And that's where I am at the moment.
0: John, you have spent 15 years synthesizing over 60,000 studies involving about a quarter of a billion students and this meta-analysis focuses on the questions that what works and what does not work in our schools and what matters in teaching this is perhaps the biggest ever evidence-based research project in education before we discuss the findings of this research talk to us about this meta-analysis this study of studies tell us about the origin of this project and tell us about the studies that you have used in this project and tell us about the approach that you have followed to combine and consolidate these studies to perform this meta-analysis
2: well
1: it started um about like late 1970s when the notion of meta-analysis was kind of first invented by Jean Glass. And What happened as researchers, what we do is we go out and study, for instance, the effect of self-concept on achievement or the difference between different class sizes. And that's what's called the primary analysis, the, 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 the major first study. And then what we can do is we can then pick up someone else's work and ask them for their data and reanalyse it. And in that sense, it's secondary. But if you don't have access to that information then what you can do is you can take many studies and you can calculate an effect for each study and then relate it to various things like years of schooling or different subjects or different countries to ask the impact of those things. And that's called a meta-analysis. Now, what I did was I then took the meta-analysis and went to the next level and said, what if you synthesized all the various meta-analyses that are out there? And that's what enabled me to get to, well, I'm up to almost 1,200 meta-analyses now, um, to look at all those effects, so it's 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 a way to accumulate a lot, and it's like all studies, they generally end up coming up with more questions than answers. The reason it took me 20, years, firstly, it was a hobby. It's not really was not really my major work. My major work is in measurement, um, but secondly, I struggled for a long time to work out the story, mm-hmm. what the story between what really makes the difference and what doesn't, and that was the hardest part.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The studies that you uh, used in this meta-analysis came from different sources, uh, from different research groups. Talk to us about the challenge of combining the data coming from different sources.
1: Well, this is absolutely important because one of the things that always interests us as teachers and educators is uh, what factors make a difference to each individual children. Like, it was as easy as saying there's one answer to teaching. Then we would all have been doing it, and all students would have been taught the same and learnt the same. Well, we all know that doesn't happen, and so you're constantly looking for, in the jargon we call it moderators. What what kind of influences out there that affect an overall conclusion? Now, sometimes it's hard to find them, and so and sometimes you can say the overall effect is a reasonable generalisation to various um, students. Uh, I certainly looked at students between the ages of four and twenty, and The whole work as a researcher you're looking all the time for exactly what you're saying what actually surprised me is there's not many it turns out there are some but there's not a lot of those moderators what tends to work well Mm -hmm. tends to work well with many students now i do want to be a little careful Um, nearly all the work comes from um, english-speaking developed countries and so i'd be a little bit careful about applying it to developing countries i'd be a little bit careful about applying it to adults and adult education Uh, there's not a lot of research there and i did not include those and um, we'll never stop wanting to ask more and continue to ask what are those moderators that make the difference
0: Mm -hmm. you have looked at all main areas such as the home the family the school the teachers the curriculum the teaching strategies and you have calculated relativity of the effects and the overall aim And overall goal is to determine what makes the difference. So this calculation of relativity of the effect, uh, talk to us about that.
1: Well, that's the most exciting part. One of the reasons I started doing this is that everybody I met in the business, both as academics and as teachers, they always told me they knew what made a difference to kids' achievement. They always said to me, just watch me, just do what I do. And it didn't make sense to me that we had a profession where everything works. And so, one of the things I'd like to think I've contributed is putting an emphasis on this relative effects. Um, you know, what makes more difference and what makes less difference? And what is the story underlying the more and the less? And get away from what often happens. Like politicians are good at this, they come up with a solution and then they say it works and they typically find evidence it works. Um, probably the most interesting and exciting thing that I think I found was that 95% plus things in education work. They make a difference. But it turns out that's the wrong answer. Mm -hmm. It's not whether they work or not, it is that relative, that they work better than other things. And that was really the exciting part.
0: So. Can we say that the end result is a massive uh, data bank uh, that can be used to calculate the effect size of uh, different teaching and learning activities, educational initiatives, and the environmental factors relevant to, to teaching and learning? Is that correct?
1: Yes, that's exactly what I've been trying to do, yes.
0: Now, you suggest in your publications that while evaluating a particular aspect of teaching and learning, its effect size should serve as a starting point for discussions and should not be considered uh, as an end point for making decisions.
1: Look, that's so true. Like anything we do in research, it's working out what the right problems are. It's using the effect sizes to say, well, let's understand now. What really makes this work or doesn't make it work? How does it interact with other things that happen in the classroom? Can we get that underlying story? Like one, uh, uh, an improper reading of my work would say, look at all the in- effect sizes individually. No, that's not the story at all. It's trying to get at that underlying message about uh, how they interact with each other to come up with the most powerful ways that we make the difference and compare it with the least powerful ways.
0: So understanding the relativity of each effect size and that how these effects relate to each other is very important.
1: That is what is most important. That's continually what we have to to do. And what I find interesting is, whilst my work has now been sort of in the public arena about 20 so years now, um, no one has come up with an alternative explanation for the story. Like some people have quibbled about some of the numbers. um, But overall, it's the story that really counts
0: john let us look into some of the findings of your research Uh, parents may try to judge a school from its class size presence of homework use of educational technologies let us discuss the effect size that you have determined for some of these attributes Uh, let us first discuss the impact of class size on student performance
1: well on the um Overall, and there's been many hundreds of studies typically comparing classes of 25 to 30 with classes of 15 to 20, the effect is positive. Reducing class size does make a difference. The problem is that effect is very, very small. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's what's interesting. Like, I'm sure every one of your listeners is saying, well, it makes sense that smaller classes make a difference. Many people say to me, well, if you look at the stuff at the top of your chart, surely it's easier to do in smaller classes. And you'd think that would be the case, but over the last 50-odd years as we've been doing this research, the effect is extremely small. And I think the only interesting question in town is, why is the effect so small when we expect it to be so large? Now, I've looked at this, spent a lot of time looking at this,
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: it turns out the answer is quite simple. If you take a teacher in a class of 25 to 30 and put them in a class of 15 to 20 and they teach the same way, it's no surprise. The difference is very very small and that's exactly what happens. So the effect of class size is very small and given it costs billions of dollars a year to reduce class I'm not sure that's a wise place to put investment until we change how we teach.
0: So perhaps when we are considering investing money in reducing class sizes if we make some or all of that investment available for teachers professional development this may have more positive impact? on student performance. So relatively more money should be invested in teachers' development?
1: Well, that's what I'd love to see happen. Um, Unfortunately, it doesn't always work that simple because if you look across nearly all the structural things, the uh, the size of classes, the ability grouping, the the, the nature of how we set up classrooms and all that, most of those are very small effects. Unfortunately, politicians like to invest things they can actually see they can't see teacher expertise. And so they don't tend to invest in that. So the problem is, in many cases, they can see small class sizes, and it's a very popular um, intervention. Like if you went to an election with small class sizes, you're most likely to win it, even though it has a small effect. So we constantly do things, uh, unfortunately, for the wrong reasons.
0: Some teachers divide students into groups based on their performance. Uh, Is this a good practice? Is this a right approach?
1: Well, once again the effect size of streaming ability grouping is very very small that's um, 0.12 on my chart which is very close to zero um, but here's here's the rub if you don't ability group the effect size is very small it's not about the structure of classrooms the problem with ability grouping actually isn't the achievement effect There's the two problems of ability grouping is firstly the ethnic issue that if you walk around the school and look at the high and the low stream classrooms and count the color then I think it's very hard to justify apartheid in our schools. The second thing is that in many systems, once a student is allocated to a particular stream, they're caught, they're kind of stuck there. Even if, let's say, they go to a particular kind of school at age 12 or 13, and at age 15 and 16, they cognitively develop quite fast. They almost can't move at that stage, and I think that's really a, a waste of talent. Um, in any system so no I'm not a fan of ability grouping Um, it doesn't make a difference whether you do it or you don't do it but given that problem of um, the ethnicity issue uh, the socioeconomic status issue and also the issue of um, allowing students to cross over streams as they develop over their lifetime any parent who wants their child stuck in a particular stream um, should go for ability grouping I think that's a problem
0: John, in your presentations, you have highlighted an interesting point uh, that uh, you think we have overplayed in a desirable way the emphasis on kids that are below average. And you say that there is nothing wrong with this. However, we have forgotten kids above average. Talk to us about that.
1: Well, not quite. Um, Certainly, I do argue that The fundamental role of a school is to ensure that every student gains at least a year's growth for a year's input and it doesn't matter whether you're struggling or whether you're bright you need that at least that a year and it turns out that many countries um, england is partly like that um, the uk certainly australia australia is a wonderful case to use because it's been going um backwards in its pisa results over the last 12 years And the general reaction when this was announced was, oh, that's terrible, all those low socioeconomic students, all those immigrant students, that's what's causing the problem. Well, actually, when you do the analysis, it's exactly the opposite. It's the top 40% that's not getting that growth compared to the bottom. We're actually better at teaching those kids. And certainly this raises, to me, a really critical question of what a good school is. Too often, parents and politicians believe good schools are those schools that have high achievement. Well, again, if I go to Australia... 40%, 40%, sorry, 30% of our high schools, one and three, are cruising. They're not adding the value. Um, and that's above average ability. And so I think that's a real problem to look at. We're actually better at teaching those kids at, uh, that are below average. And so I look at the school system and say a good school system is, is where all the kids get at least that year's growth, not they're above average or not. And I think that makes a dramatic difference to your policies and how you think about schools. And I'd like to you know, assure the parents, no matter what the school is their student is going to, they should look at it in terms of the learning that goes on. Is it a inviting place for students to come want to learn? Do they want to go to school? Is it is it has there evidence that they're actually adding at least that year's growth, regardless of their starting ability? And so I think all students need that. But in general we're actually a little bit better with those kids below average than we are above.
0: John, our schools follow annual system. When a learner starts a year, and even if the learner is capable of completing the entire year's work in few months, the learner has to spend a full year to complete that grade. Uh, do you have a view on this?
1: I think one of the most absurd things we do in this business is we put students into year groups, and we say, for instance, at year six, um, we assume, wrongly, that all kids in year six are learning at the year six level um, you know it's one of the most craziest things we do you know, there are some systems who group students by their levels of ability but unfortunately a lot of parents don't like that and a lot of kids don't like that they like to go up with their social peers um, and it makes the job for teachers that much harder when you have that kind of range of ability and then when you get the absurd system that's happened in this part of the world over the last few years where you have tests that are aimed at year five students and you've got an incredible range It does a massive disservice because it misses the point. The job of school is to add value. The job of school is to teach students so that they can learn and gain, regardless of where they started. Unfortunately, a lot of the current curricula, a lot of the current assessments, privilege those who are bright in the first place, but condemn them in a sense because they don't often have to gain as much to look good. And therein lies the problem. I can assure you, though, I don't have any... Any hope that we will change the year grouping in our system, it's kind of inbred into us. But it does lead to major problems and misunderstandings in in our system.
0: And uh, why do you think that saying to a student that do your best is perhaps the worst thing that we could uh, say to a student?
1: Um, As a parent or as a teacher, um, yes, that is one of the worst things you can say. Because what the meta-analyses show that if you contrast that with setting the kids challenging tasks, then the effect is very, very large. You know, the art here is, is the Goldilocks principle. You, know, you don't want to make the challenge too hard and you don't want to make the challenge too easy. And that's the art of good teaching. And so challenging students, particularly young adolescent students, they love challenge. Um, I don't know if, if, if you have um, kids of your own, but you watch kids play computer games. Mm-hmm. They've worked out exactly how to challenge kids. They know the Goldilocks principle. You know, make the next level of Angry Birds not too hard, but not too easy. And then you don't change that criteria of success, but you give the students incredible number of opportunities to practice. You give them feedback. And then when they get to the next level, then you raise it and you keep going. Unfortunately, what we often do in school is the opposite. We set a goal. We often don't even tell the student what success looks like. We say, wait, in 10 weeks' time, we'll give you a test and you can see whether you know it or not. And then often what we also do is if we set some criteria of success and the students don't reach it, we lower that criteria of success to make it look easier for them. The exact opposite of what the computer games do. And I think this is a really interesting analogy about uh, this notion of challenge, is that you don't put a, a student onto a computer game and say, do your best. They want to be involved in the challenge. They have the thrill of the chase. They know what its success looks like, and they really, really will put hours and hours and hours into it. Sometimes I think we've taken the challenge out of learning in our schools.
0: Another way to look at this point is that when we say to a learner that do your best, we are setting a limit based on their abilities. However, what we should do is we should encourage learners to keep improving their abilities.
1: I have to say to my boys many times, your best's not good enough. And I think you're right. And if you look at um, you know, what's up near the top of the charts, and the the different effect sizes is that it's this notion of student expectations, and sometimes students set ve- well, they humans we humans do this. We set very safe targets. Like I was, I'm going to go play a round of golf this Saturday. If I can break hundred, I'll be feeling very good because that's my norm. That's a very safe target. Well, the job of schools is to mess that safety up and to give kids, and to help kids exceed what they think their potential is. And so saying do your best is exactly what you said. It reinforces that what you can do now is what you can do in the future. And that's a terrible thing to say to a student.
0: Uh, Moving on to uh, another very interesting attribute. Um, uh, Does homework make a difference?
1: The effect, this is one where there is a moderator, where there is a difference. In high school, homework does make a difference. In primary school, the effect size is almost exactly zero. But the important thing here is the implications of that that does not mean that we should abolish high schools and primary, uh, homework in primary school what it means is that typically homework is adding no value in primary school so let's look closely at it and change what we do like we know for example from the studies that it does time's not really a matter it doesn't matter whether it's five minutes or 50 minutes certainly one of the worst things you can do in primary schools is to set projects what projects do is for the students who don't know how to learn, it's another reason for them to to explain to themselves, this learning's not for me. Like for example, when my children went to school, they went to school in North Carolina, and it's compulsory by law there that every year there's a um, science project mm-hmm. that must be done. It took me three years to work out that there's a web page, science projects for parents. And because that's what actually happens. Um, they don't do it in any sustained way. It's usually done at the last minute. It's something that's disliked. The parents don't like it. But the third thing about homework is that it is a wonderful opportunity to reinforce that which has already been learnt in the classroom, an opportunity to do practice. And practice is really critical in this business called learning. And so that's when I look at the primary school and say, well, is it in the school that my child is going to, is it reasonably brief? Is it an opportunity to learn something they've already done? The final aspect is and is it assessed by the teacher? Not because assessment's a good thing, but it says to the student that it is part of the day job and it's not just an added extra. And that's one of the reasons high school homework's effective because often more than, more than anything else, it usually is practice of something that's being learned. So whilst homework has a zero effect, it's because of our current practice, not because it can't be an effective way of doing things. It's a, if a school abolished prim, a homework in a primary school, it's a good thing if the current practice is not wise. But it's also an opportunity to really make it wise.
0: John, what does your research tell us about the impact of home environment on learning? Uh, What are the main attributes of home environment that enhance learning? And what are the attributes that have negative impact?
2: Yeah,
1: home is a really interesting one because, of course, um, if you look at the socioeconomic status of the home, it's related to achievement. But then you've got to also remember that socioeconomic status is often a proxy for prior achievement. Um, And so when you take that into account, the main effect of the home is not the actual resources, it's whether the parents encourage and have high expectations for their students. Um, That really is the most important thing. Uh, Do the parents talk to their student about learning? Not what you did at school today, but what was the learning that went on? How do you go about your learning? Now, I've not met a parent yet who doesn't want to help their kid. Some parents struggle to know how, and that's where I think it's really critical that schools take the major responsibility for this thing called learning so that we don't have an increased achievement gap where the the students with the parents who know how give advantages at the home and at the school, so there's a double whammy. Um, I'm certainly not saying those parents shouldn't help their kids, but we really do have to put an onus on kids, and as I said before, we're actually pretty good with some of those kids who struggle in home, But it is parents having high expectations um, and having encouragement about learning. Things like watching television is a negative effect. Um, the major reason is that it's, a, um, it's not a very active brain in, in, um, thing. Kids don't watch active brain things. They watch um, entertainment, which usually means very light pressure on the brain. Um, certainly moving schools has quite a negative effect. Um, There's no question bullying, whether it be the home or in the school has a negative effect. Um, But the the effect of the home is not as great as I think many people argue it to be. I'm not suggesting for a minute that we leave poverty at the school gate. We don't. Um, But I certainly look at many schools, particularly around um, your part of the world and my part of the world, that are very good, excellent, in fact, at working with those kids. One of the things I think we should think about... like. Look, I'm traveling around the world at the moment, and it's really interesting over the last 10 years that the uh, airline business has made me become their, tourist, their ticket agent. I do mm-hmm. my ticketing online. I do my check-in online. So when I go to the bank, you know, they don't go to the teller anymore. I go to the ATM and I use my credit card. And in the language of the banks and the tourist industry, they call it co-production. How do you get the client to co-produce? And I think that's the interesting thing about the home. If schools could stop thinking of parents as people who come to run schools and provide the light bulbs and the extra money and supervise the kids doing the homework. But how could we think if parents could co-produce in this thing called learning? I think there's a massive breakthrough we could make through there. And I'm starting to see it happen with some of the interesting uses of technology, but it's still very, very new. Unfortunately, we still think of parents as the people that deal with the kids in the extra hours once they're out of school, monitor the homework and those. And that's really not a major and good use of them.
0: This leads us to my next question. Uh, You say that watching TV a lot at home has a negative impact on social and emotional learning of students. Now, this generation of school learners use smartphones. They have uh, 24-7 access to on-demand videos. They communicate using digital technologies. My question is that uh, the effect size that you have calculated for watching uh, TV Uh, uh, on social and emotional learning can that effect size be extrapolated to include the impact of these digital technologies
1: yes I think it can because it's what is the nature of learning that happens when students are involved in those social activities you know it's it's not about challenging tasks it's not about learning what to do when you don't know what to do it's not about making errors and learning it's not about challenging yourself it's not about building up the content that we value in our society now on the one hand i have no troubles with the social and emotional stuff in terms that you can get from having friends on facebook and all that kind of stuff but the over-reliance on it depriving us and it's depriving our students of opportunities to really make the difference in their learning it's the balance is um, just not there
0: john we have discussed few attributes and their impact on learning uh, please give us uh, more information about some other attributes that, in your view and according to your research, have major impact on learning.
1: Oh, good. You've got to get on to the large ones. Um, yeah, because so far we're mainly talking about the, the the ones that are very small. And I think it's very interesting that the majority of things that um, we talk about, uh, both in the media Um, amongst the the parents at voting time but also in the schools most of them are actually quite small and that's the structural things if you get on to the big things um, there's no question that it comes down to the expertise of the teacher and the school leaders it's how they think like in the early days I was looking about what they did and it was very hard to make a strong story about the differences between the highly effective teaching interventions compared to the others And it was only when I struck on this notion that the most effective thing is that when a teacher walks into a classroom and says, my job here today is to evaluate my impact on the students, then the students are the biggest winners. When a principal walks into a staff room and says, my job here today is to evaluate my impact on the teachers in this room, then the students are the biggest beneficiaries. It's those teachers who are constantly looking to say what what worked, what didn't work, what worked with whom. They have a really good understanding of this notion of what is my impact. And impact is not just test scores. It's whether kids are prepared to reinvest in their learning. Are they prepared to go further? Are they prepared to seek out and try and understand more? Those are impact as well. And I think that's really the most profound difference is this notion of um, this mind frame they have
0: of know thy impact. And this is perhaps the main idea that you present in your book uh, visible learning for teachers that when teaching and learning is visible uh, when it is clear what teachers are teaching and what students are learning student achievement increases Uh, please tell us uh, more uh, about this concept of visible learning you have briefly touched upon this uh, earlier in our discussion
1: yeah and it really is um, this like the knowing no impact really does come to that down to that three three things and that is you know what is the nature of impact how big is the impact and how pervasive how many students are you having this impact and um, one of the things certainly that we do in our work now in our schools is that you know, we get teachers to work together because I think this is the other thing that we've often forgotten like there's a lot of debate out there that a school is only as good as its teacher, a country is only as good as its teacher. Well, actually, that's not the case at all. It's only as good as their teachers, and this is where the school leader is important. When you get teachers working together in planning their lessons and having debates about this notion of what is effective learning, uh, when you get teachers working together to uh, talk about what success looks like and what what does success look over these five weeks or these ten weeks that we're working, um and whether they have a common understanding. Now, one of the biggest problems, certainly that in the research I've done in New Zealand and now in Australia, the biggest problem of the school system is teachers don't have a common conception of what progress is. And it doesn't seem fair to me that every time a student hits a new teacher, it's reasonably random whether that stu- the student's gonna go up or down depending on the teacher's view of what challenge is. Yes, of course they have a curriculum, but often the curriculum talks about the content, not about the nature of challenge. And I've been in many schools and in the work we've done in assessment, particularly in New Zealand, you can go to many schools where the year six teacher has a lower level of sense of challenge than the year five teacher. Well, that's just wrong and unfair. And so one of the big messages when teachers are working together to evaluate their impact, then it really makes a difference. One of the things that follows from that is that if you know up front what success looks like before you start learning, then the learning is more effective. But so what we do in school so often is we say to students, wait, in six or eight weeks we'll tell you after you've done a test how good you do. Like for example, I was a music teacher in the very little years I had as a real teacher. And uh, one of the things there is it was quite easy to show the students what success looked like. And now we're gonna work in the particular skills we're gonna learn the surface knowledge, we're gonna get the deep knowledge. That doesn't happen enough. And if you are gonna have and tell students what success looks like, clearly that points very tightly to this notion of what impact is. Now I could talk about some other things that are near the top, but that's by far the most important one.
0: Please go ahead and, and, and give us more information on this.
1: Like, let me take, for example, um, one of the largest effects of the lot, and that is student expectations. And this is where, unfortunately, by about the age of eight, most students have learned about what this thing called school means. Uh, many of them learn that their job is to come to school, to listen to the teacher, to sit up straight, to do the work. And that's exactly what learning is not. We certainly know in many classrooms, teachers talk 80% of the time. We know they ask between 150 and 350 questions a day. We know 90% of the questions they ask at surface level about the facts. Um, We know 95% of the questions they ask, the kids know they already know the answer. And kids learn very quickly what that's, that's like. They also learn very quickly, by about age eight, Where they fall in the classroom, are they at the top, middle, or the bottom? And often, again, children like us, they set safe targets. They say, I got a C last time, I'm going to see if I can get a C this time. The job of teachers is never to meet the needs of students in that way. The job of teachers is never to help kids reach their potential. The only purpose of education in Ireland is for teachers to help students exceed what students think is their potential. And if you look at um, those teachers that had a profound impact on you, And um, you know, I'd, I'd encourage your listeners to think of, name those teachers. You now, most people can't name more than two or three. And they usually have about 50. And when you f- ask you why those teachers had an impact on you, it's usually two reasons. One is they turned you on to the passion of their subject. Or the other one is they saw something in you you didn't see in yourself. They helped you exceed your potential. And I think that's really a critical thing to do. And I really encourage teachers to look at students and don't just assume that they're going to be C students or B students. Try and find ways. And of course, you're going to have to find a way to do it. It's not as easy as saying it. Um, but certainly, in my own experience, I can think of two or three teachers who have had that kind of effect. So I think that's the key notion. One of the things I looked about for about the last 15 years is this notion of feedback. It really is a powerful notion. The problem with it, though, is that it's, extremely variable there's good feedback and there's bad feedback in the early days i used to find do research on trying to find ways to increase the amount of feedback teachers gave to students oh was i so wrong um, it was the wrong question to ask teachers actually give a lot of feedback to students the problem is students don't receive it and probably the best analogy there i've seen is you know, i'm a husband I have very good selective listening with my wife. I know exactly when to listen and when not to listen, Mm -hmm. and so I know how to receive feedback and not receive (laughs) feedback, and kids are no different. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've spent a lot of time working on that, and then I dawned on me another thing that I'd missed is that the most powerful form of feedback is the feedback teachers receive about their effects. And that leads me right back to that know thy impact, and certainly I'm still working on feedback. I don't think I've got it all right yet, Um, There's still a lot of variability there. Um, We know, for instance, praise has a zero to negative effect on achievement. I'm not saying you shouldn't praise kids. Just don't mix it up with feedback about the task. We know, for instance, that um, when you you ask teachers what they mean by feedback, they typically talk in terms of telling students uh, how they're going. When you ask students what they mean by feedback, they say, I want to know what to do next. And if there's no where to next information and the feedback information that teachers and parents give kids, then kids don't receive it. So there's a really lot of interesting things to do about that feedback, but it does bring that full circle back to teachers receiving feedback.
0: You just mentioned assessments and the feedback on the assessments. Uh, John, an important point that you emphasize uh, in your publications is that assessments are not just to assess Learners. Assessments are also for the teachers to assess themselves, and teachers can learn about themselves and about their teaching strategies through student assessments.
1: Oh, very strongly so. In fact, my whole um, work in that area is based on assessment as feedback to teachers. Um, Like if a teacher gives an assessment, and after it, they don't understand um, who they taught well, the magnitude of what they taught well. Um, the nature and the content about what worked and what didn't work and if they don't then change what they do next then quite frankly in most cases the assessment's not worth it let me give you a simple test the next time a teacher gives a class an assessment ask the students before they do the assessment to estimate their grade they are very good at it and if that's the case why do we do it? we don't really do it for the student's benefit the major reason we do it is for the benefit of the teacher. Now, I'm not saying kids can't get benefits out of assessment. It can be a very effective way um, to build up time priority because usually assessment has got a timing element to it. It's a very good way to um, practice and rehearse and get, and get feedback about what you're doing. But the, truly the major effect is the assessment information for teachers. We um, developed the New Zealand Assessment Scheme for primary schools and high schools. Um, and we've developed a whole system, it's available, it's voluntary. Um, I'm pleased to say that um, close to 50 to 80% of teachers to this day volunteer to use that system on a very regular basis 13 years later. I don't see that happening in this country. The reason? The majority of the information on that assessment was directly back to teachers.
0: You mentioned another very interesting point and this is about praising uh, the learners on their achievements and that the teachers should be careful about the impact of praise and the type of praise that learners receive. Are you suggesting an approach similar to what Professor Carol Dweck has suggested in her publications where she highlights the importance of praise that recognizes effort? Well, in many parts,
1: yes, I do. I think Carol um, Dweck has um, certainly pointed out the difficulties of praise when it's mixed up with achievement information. Now, I've done quite a bit of research and still doing research on her argument that it affects effort. And I have to say I'm struggling to find a lot of it. Um, I think the major issue is that any praise, when it's mixed with achievement information, um neutralizes it what happens is you say to a student you know you're really a good person i really like what you're doing i love what you put your effort in and here's some information about the task when you ask them an hour or two days later what they remembered they remember the praise um they're humans they're like us um it's kind of like when people says says to you i really like this radio program i really like and you know there's a but coming and you're just waiting for the butt. You hear the butt. When someone goes to ask you a couple of days later, what did that person say? Oh, they really like the program. Mm-hmm. And you remember that. And that's what we do as humans. And so even though I think Carol's partly right, the effect on praise is, is, is on effort, my argument is really simple. You should praise kids. It's a way of building relationships. It's a way of building some kind of trust with some of the kids. Uh, like kids are very, very perceptive to, to know whether you don't like them. And praise is a very good one, obviously genuine praise, as a a way of saying to a kid, I really do like you. But when it comes to talking about the achievement task, take that out, please. And then the kids will remember the information about the task. Uh, So I I certainly don't want it to be said that you shouldn't praise children, not at all. I certainly don't want you to be horrible to kids. I just want you to separate the two things out. I want to maximise the feedback about the task, about the strategies the students are using and where they can go to next. And then maybe five minutes later, praise them on something else.
0: John, you point out in your presentations uh, that uh, one of the main findings of your research is that uh, the biggest effect on student learning occurs when teachers become learners of their own teaching and when students become their own teachers. Now, We have touched upon uh, this concept uh, that uh, teachers should become learners of their own teaching. But when you say that students should become their own teachers, are you suggesting peer assessments and learning in groups?
1: In part, that's a way to do it. But no, it's not really that. Mm -hmm. We have fancy language in education um, as as researchers and we talk about things like self-regulation. Um, teaching students how to regulate themselves we talked about metacognition which is do they have a sort of a an awareness of how they think we talk the 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 big thing at the moment is we talk about 21st century skills which is really interesting because we're an eighth of the way through so we better get busy to know what that is but most of the 21st century skills are learning strategies like collaboration and creative thinking but when you actually boil all those three things down, I think what they really mean is that you learn how to teach yourself. You learn what to do when you don't know what to do next. You know what to do when you get into a, um, a situation that you struggle with and you know how to get yourself out of it. You now We demand that of our adults. We demand it in our employment situation. We demand it in our sports field um, that you know, students are able to take decisions and initiatives And I think certainly five-year-olds are very good at teaching themselves and teaching each other. Unfortunately, by age eight, we teach them how to be passive. Like, I think it's fascinating, you know, that um, teachers do talk 80% of the time. They do ask those kind of questions. Like, we're probably the only profession where students come to school to watch teachers work. I want to turn that on its head. Um, One of my passions is that this notion of error and making mistakes. We... ...truths. Um, When a student makes a mistake, they often sit and wait. Um, They don't put their hand up and ask for help. They certainly don't do that in many classrooms because they fear some of the other students making snide comments about there goes old stupid again. And so they just learn that mistakes are part of the business. Now, that's not what I want to see happening in our classrooms. And I spend a lot of time listening to student questions. I don't listen to teacher questions. I've given up on that. I listen to student questions. There's not many of them. Um, I look to see what happens when they get in the pit. That is when they don't know what to do. And I think it's a very healthy place to be. But you have to be helped out of the pit sometimes. But sometimes you have to be allowed to go down there and wallow in you're not knowing this. Now, there's a right time to do that and there's a wrong time to do that. But certainly this whole notion of becoming your own teacher so that certainly when you get to um, adolescent adulthood, you're able to teach yourself you're able to know these kind of things and I think that should be a core part and certainly the the research says that when you look at what we should be doing to students is we should be constantly teaching them. Now you mentioned things like peer assessment, um, peer tutoring, yeah they're very powerful and they're part of the strategies we can use but they're only part of the strategy.
0: And then this concept of learning to learn should lead to lifelong learning?
1: That's certainly what we want to do and you know we, we can't forget that when students are in school between the ages of 15, 5 and 15, that's life and we should worry about it then. Like the study I'm doing at the moment um, following up from the visible learning is I've spent the last year or so looking at a similar kind of metasynthesis relating to learning strategies. I'm involved in another one based in Germany at the moment where we're looking at a similar thing in terms of the effects on motivation and effective outcomes but certainly when you look at the effects on learning strategies. You know, there are desirable learning strategies. The problem is that you have to know when to apply them. Like if you're going to learn how to highlight and uh, underline and um, work out main ideas, that's a very good thing to do when you're building up subject matter knowledge. It's not a very good thing to do when you're trying to problem solve. There are different kinds of strategies. And I think we need to pay a lot more attention to teaching kids the right strategies. Let me give you a great example. Mm-hmm. One of the most powerful ways of teaching yourself to learn when, you are, when you've got a fair bit of knowledge but you're trying to relate the ideas together is to think aloud. When was the last time you walked in the classroom and you heard kids thinking aloud? It's a very powerful strategy. And I think these are some of the things that you know, we can teach kids. We can hear how they think. Classroom discussion. like I, It may seem obvious, but classroom discussion is a very powerful way for teachers to hear the effects of their teaching. Now I'm sure this wouldn't happen in Ireland, but in the last couple of years in the US, there's a mammoth study funded by Bill Gates where they followed teachers, 3,000 teachers, um, over six months. Um, 60% of those teachers in that three to six months did not have a single classroom discussion. Um, That's a pretty horrifying statistic. But how do you get discussions where students are talking to each other, not intervened by the teacher? where they're asking each other questions, where they're giving each other answers. And I've done that in my own um, teaching, and it's a bit scary at times, because despite how brilliant a teacher I think I am, when the students ask stupid questions, and they give each other wrong answers. You sit there and say, ooh. But hey, you know you haven't done a good job. But the temptation is to jump in and correct them straight away. No, it's a really tough skill, but it's a really important skill to actually hear that discussion and then obviously correct what you have to do, But it's a very powerful way to hear your impact and also for the students to hear. Um, A lot of students who struggle in school, one of the reasons they struggle is they don't have the vocabulary um, to do the work. One powerful way to get that is through a classroom discussion, hearing their students. Like, Let me give you another example. One of the Mm -hmm. things we know about feedback is after you've learned something and you're learning it and you're not too sure... The most powerful way for you to consolidate that learning is to hear one of your peers, one of your colleagues say it. Not a teacher, not another person from sort of younger or older, but someone that you've been working with say it. And so this notion of hearing it, Now, of course you want that to be right. You don't want peers to say things that are wrong. Because if they say it's wrong, then you you also remember that. And this is obviously why the teacher structuring this is still very, very critical.
0: Uh, John, in your book, Visible Learning for Teachers... Uh, you discuss eight mind frames uh, or ways of thinking that must underpin every action in schools. And you have mentioned some of these uh, mind frames uh, uh, earlier in this discussion. Uh, Would you please briefly describe these eight mind frames?
1: Sure. The first one and probably the most critical one is that notion that um, I am an evaluator, that my job is to evaluate my impact the, the, the second one which is very similar is that I'm a change agent my job is to walk into a class and say my job here today is to change now it begs the moral purpose question change about what and so it should but I'm not if I walk into a classroom and say my job is to facilitate learning I'm the guide on the side uh, my job is to help kids get through the curriculum to pass a test then the research says that they are associated with very low influences on students' learning. Whereas those teachers who go in and say, I am deliberately here and put here to change these students have a much, much higher effect size. And of course, it's, as I said, it's the moral purpose question. It's much easier to be a, a guide on the side, but I'm sorry, the most effective teachers, those out there that have deliberate intentions to want to change. Another mind frame is I talk about te- learning, not teaching. I'm getting old, i been around for a while. I'm at the stage of my career, I don't want to, almost, I don't want to hear another discussion about teaching. I don't want to hear another person say to me, this is how you should teach. So you shouldn't teach that way. Someone comes to me and says, look at this new app that I've got, or look at this new resource. Quite frankly, we should stop that. Because teachers need a variety of strategies. If their direct instruction or their reciprocal teaching or whatever method they're using doesn't work, they have to change and try a different method. Not say, oh, the student's dumb, the student didn't do their homework, the student doesn't come class prepared. If the students don't do those things, they have to change. And I think it's this notion that my job is to affect kids' learning um, rather than just the old story I taught them, but they didn't learn. Well, that's just unacceptable. I hinted hinted at one of the other mind frames a few moments ago is that my job... As a mind frame, my job is to engage in dialogue. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, Like, teachers do talk 70 to 80% of the time. Uh, That's the norm. When you ask teachers, they say they only talk 30 to 40%. But when you actually analyze them, and we're doing some work in this part of the world at the moment looking at um, how teachers actually perform in the classroom, it is quite high. Um, And I'm not sure what the right percentage should be, but I certainly know it's not 80 to 90% of the time. Or 60 or 70% of the time and so I certainly want to see more dialogue in the classroom not just because kids talking is important but quite frankly that's probably one of the most powerful ways for teachers to hear their impact another mind frame is I enjoy the challenge like this notion that um, do your best should be banished from your vocabulary
2: mm-hmm.
1: and certainly challenge is very powerful like feedback for example now, feedback works best when you don't know something feedback works best when you're in the middle of a challenging situation if you're in the middle of angry birds and you're trying to get to the next level or candy crush that's when you want challenge that's when you want help that's when you need assistance that's when you look for for hints and you receive feedback and so this notion of challenge I think is totally underestimated in our system once again it's that Goldilocks notion and related to that is um, the mind frame that my job is to develop positive relationships
2: Mm -hmm.
1: but the reason why I want high teacher-student relationships. The reason I want high student-student relationships is only when you have high trust is it okay to make mistakes. Is it okay to say, I don't know, will you help me? Is it okay to say, I really don't have a clue, what's going on here? Uh, and that trust thing is really important. Like if you don't have a trusting relationship with something like someone, it's really hard to expose yourself um, to say that you don't know how to do this particular task whatever and so that's why that relationships is really really so critical and probably the last one I'll mention is that learning is hard work um, sometimes we try to imply particularly as parents that what you're going to do is easy um, it's not and this is relate to the challenge yeah if it's a challenging task it's hard work now, if you're going to try and climb the mountain it's tough work if you're going to rappel down a, uh, walk, go down some rapids in a canoe it's hard work If you're going to do a maths problem, it's hard work. And I think one of the things we should do is we should teach kids that hard work is a good thing. Like when they go out there in the workplace, when they go out there in many social situations, um, it's hard work to maintain what's going on. And I think this is what we should teach kids is what to do when you get in those situations, how you deal with these things. Learning requires a lot of practice. Um, With my own... Self, with my own boys, if only in high school in particular, they had taught my students, my boys, that effort makes the difference and putting in a lot of effort. Like over the years, I've been very involved in coaching cricket. Um, and certainly in cricket, um, they usually like the game because they know what success looks like.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, they certainly know before they go out some of the skills they have to have. But the difference between the really good players and the not so good players is the fact that they ex- have expended an incredible amount of effort to take a very small difference they may have in terms of skill differences and exploit it. It's no different in maths and reading and music and phys ed and panel beating or you name it. And I think that's really one of the key mind frames we have to instill both in the teachers and the students.
0: Uh, John, uh, let us briefly discuss the future of education. Uh, your research informs us that uh, what matters and what does not matter in teaching and learning. The expectations of the next generation of school learners are going to be different. These digital natives hugely rely on internet and communication technologies. And, and you mentioned an interesting uh, idea. Uh, earlier that there are opportunities for parents to get more involved in school affairs uh, by using emerging communication technologies now considering all these aspects talk to us about the school of 10 to 15 years from now and my question is that do do we just need to fine-tune and extend already existing processes and approaches or do you think that schools 15 to 20 years from now will be massively different from today's schools
1: well one of the things about um 10 15 years ago like i'm an academic i write research articles i do research i write books Um, yes i go into schools and i can give speeches and they can be kind of entertaining and teachers kind of like it but I discovered very quickly that uh, on the next day nothing happened and so I decided to stop that because it was taking up my time I was enjoying it but I really was wasting the school's time and so I built a group of um, people around me who are very good at making the difference in school and so over the last 10 years we've really worked out uh, how to go into schools and to see what's going on and to really make the difference but here's the key point wasn't when I look at the PISA results in this part of the world, and you know, you're, you're in the top 20. I know you want to be in the top five, but you know, the good news is there's about 140 countries behind you, but you know, we're, we're up there. Mm-hmm. My estimate here in the, in the UK is around 50, 60, uh, maybe is touch higher schools and teachers are already in the desire of the zone in terms of what we're talking about in visible learning. You've got to remember, visible learning is based on real-world classrooms. It's based on real teachers and real kids. And when you take that into account, and I say 50 to 60% are already doing it, I think, in a really good job, I think the thing that is the most important is to realise that success is all around us now. We have this terrible habit of looking to Finland, looking to Shanghai, looking for 20 years, looking for magic dramatic turns, like this part of the world you've had this terrible fetish where you've looked at different kinds of schools and you know school effects are very small compared to the differences compared to the teacher effects um, and certainly I think the, the the hardest thing and the most critical thing is to say let's pause for a second and let's identify the incredible success around us now it may be that the most successful teachers are not our 30 year experts it may be that our best teachers sorry our 30 year experienced teachers it may be our 5 year experienced teachers we don't have a lot of courage to recognise expertise. We have a myth amongst teachers that all teachers are equal. And you know that's not true. Every kid knows that's not true. Every teacher knows that's not true. But that myth is killing us. And so we constantly look for this magic bullet to come along and solve the problem. The work that we do is we start by identifying success. We start by working with schools and saying, let's look what you mean by impact. Let's look at the kind of impact you having in the school. Yes, we've got some benchmarks from visible learning to to say whether it's good enough and it's hardly ever it's almost every time sorry almost every time in every school we've worked at there are pockets of success those are the basis of the coalition of success that we build on the school now hey it requires incredibly strong school leaders those school leaders have to face the reality that they've got some teachers that are already working in that zone of desire desirability now the next thing we do is we invite the other teachers to join us This is not a gold standard, this is not some magic way off the the planet thing we're doing here. This is saying to all teachers, if you like the best teachers we already have, we'd have a really wonderful system here in Ireland. Unfortunately, getting teachers, getting principals to identify success in their own schools one of the toughest things we do. They default to things like the more experienced teachers, the more senior teachers. And that's not always the case. and that's so I, I don't think we, we should be looking for other places. I don't think we should be looking anything other than internally and identifying that success. Now, we haven't got the courage to do that. We're going to continue to throw things at teachers, throw things at schools, and we'll flatline. Uh,
0: John, uh, talk to us about uh, research projects and ideas that you are working on nowadays. And uh, what next from here?
1: Yeah, um, Since I've shifted to Melbourne, one of the things that we've been successful at um, is we've won a very large, multi-multi-multi-million dollar contract to set up a science of learning centre along with the Queensland Brain Institute and the ACER in Australia. And so I'm a co-director of that and so for the last four or five years I've been going to classes on neuropsychology and neurobiology and re-teaching myself all those kind of things so I can talk to my colleagues. I don't pretend to be an expert on those things, but I can talk to my colleagues about those. And certainly one of the major things I've been doing over this past year is this um, synthesis, this matter of synthesis of learning strategies. And the aim of that, and I'm almost finished it, but the aim of that is to identify the most powerful learning strategies so that the next part of the project for next year is we want to look at how we go about assessment of those. I think it's interesting that we have millions and millions and millions of tests of achievement But most teachers and most kids have no assessments of how they go about learning. And certainly it won't be easy. We don't pretend that uh, we can do it with pencil and paper tests. It'll be, we're trying to do it with simulations. Um, Our team in Melbourne over the last few years has been looking very closely at this and has solved the problem of how you measure collaborative problem solving. um, So successfully that it's going to be in the next PISA round across all countries. Um, And giving kids information about, and teachers information about how you go about developing collaborative problem solving. I want to do that in some of the other areas. So that's really exciting and something I want to do. The other thing I'm doing is that, um, as I mentioned before, I'm a researcher, I'm not that good in schools, but we have schools constantly asking us, um, how do you go about doing this thing called visible learning? And the team that I've been working with over the last 10 years um, is now in many thousands of schools. So one of the things we've just finished doing at the moment is a case study book of um, 15 schools around the world that have um, gone through a journey with us um, and has gone through that whole phase that I mentioned of identifying success, building a coalition of success, having impact coaches in the school, turning it around to look at feedback to teachers and so I'm quite excited about that and building up uh, you know, more case studies so other schools can see how to do this um, and, and certainly I have another project, um, actually I, it's, it's my wife that's running this other project that I'm very much a part of and part of it's based here in um, the UK where we're going into schools and rather than videoing schools, which is very expensive um, and very intrusive because the camera's there, but it's also expensive because it takes you quite a lot of hours to analyze the information. Um, What we're doing is we're using modern technology and we're using professional captioners. You know, those people that um, do the um, captioning underneath the sports and the news programs. We have a commercial captioning company actually based here in the UK, AI Media, And so what happens is a teacher um, dials a local number, um, and they can do this in Ireland as well, and then just puts the phone in their pocket. Uh, Within seven seconds, we can produce on a student's laptop or their iPad, we can produce everything the teacher says, word for word. At the end of the lesson, we ask the students to rate their learning in that lesson. Then we feedback to the teacher immediately the transcript of the lesson, the learning analytics from the students, and in that seven seconds, we can also code about 15 to 20 things about the lesson. And so the teachers can immediately see um, how they actually go about teaching through the eyes of students. And it's been a very powerful way to show teachers how, how they actually do and act in the classroom. Sometimes teachers are very happy with that and want to continue it. Sometimes they want to change, uh, but it's a really exciting project.
0: Professor John Hattie, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show.
1: And I've thoroughly enjoyed it also. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much and uh, goodbye. Uh, This was great. I really enjoyed and thank you
1: for the opportunity for doing this. It really was wonderful.